Game Cool Books, Episode 26, You Can't Read the Darkness. With Chapter 18, Fog and Ice, we come into the third and final section of the book, Svalbard. According to the Norwegian Polar Institute website, Svalbard is mentioned in Icelandic annals from 1194 and means something like cold coast or cold edge. It is a place we've been hearing about for a long time, but only in the final pages of the chapter does Lyra actually arrive there, and not exactly in the way she had intended to. The main action takes place above the clouds, in the form of conversations, first between Lee Scoresby and Serafina Pekala, and then between the Witch Queen and Lyra. Philosophically, these are some of the richest dialogues in the story. Their presentation here, staged in the sky in the interlude of travel, is quieter than the tour de force battle and escape, which closed the Bolvanger section, but no less impressive, even before it's punctuated by the cliff ghasts and the crash landing. The stately dance of interlocutors depends upon the familiar cadence of waking and sleeping. Serafina Pekala, whose wisdom governs the conversations, is watchful throughout. Yorick Birneson sleeps throughout, as does Roger, just as it juxtaposes the witch and the bear and points up the difference in character between the two children. This makes Lee and Lyra nearly, nearly parallel. Their conversation with one another, presumably, is what is meant to be conspicuously absent, what might have taken place if not for the emergency which closes the chapter and cuts off further discussion. It's something like what happened before. Just before this, Lyra's reunion with the Egyptians was cut off by her sudden apotheosis. Still, as readers, we can in some measure supply that missing material based on the framework we're given, and which must be left out according to the exigencies of the story, progressing rapidly towards its end. To set the scene, Lyra is under the furs, sleeping innocently with Roger. Lee checks on her, then looks to his instruments, debonair yet careful with that cigar he would never light, and the witches fly alongside the balloon. Lyra is the topic of their talk. In line with his laconic humor, Lee protests that he is just looking out for number one, being practical, making conversation. The witch is ethereal yet earnest in her replies, yet taken together their argument, like the clever filling of the balloon and its unorthodox mode of locomotion, functions as an illustration of the narration itself. At stake is the importance of the individual, the significance of stories and truth, the possibility of freedom within a meaning-laden, if not providential, cosmos. This little girl's pretty important, huh, he said after several minutes. More than she will know, Serafina Pekala said. Does that mean there's going to be much in the way of armed pursuit? You understand, I'm speaking as a practical man with a living to earn. I can't afford to get busted up or shot to pieces without some kind of compensation agreed to in advance. I ain't trying to lower the tone of this expedition, believe me, ma'am, but John Fa and the Egyptians paid me a fee that's enough to cover my time and skill and the normal wear and tear on the balloon, and that's all. It doesn't include acts of war insurance. 
And let me tell you, ma'am, when we land York Bernison on Svalbard, that will count as an act of war. He spat a piece of smoke leaf delicately overboard. So I'd like to know what we can expect in the way of mayhem and ructions. And maybe that should have been the title for this episode, but it happens right there in the start of the chapter, so I thought I'd find a different one. Again, as at the witch consoles, Lyra's importance is linked to her ignorance of it. Lee has inferred something of it from the conflict swirling around her, though no direct reference is made to Mrs. Coulter as he delicately spits out a bit of smoke leaf. The other locus of conflict, Yorick, is his other immediate concern. Landing him on Svalbard will be an act of war, according to the aeronaut. But the witch points out, and on reflection Lee concedes, that the bear has bound himself to Lyra. She speaks of it in terms of fate. Lee prefers to see it as a faithful love, but either way, he expects it to cause mayhem and ructions, a supposition she does not dispute. When that mortal combat does play out, once again Lyra will have been the architect of it. In all this, Lee's language is couched in economics, contracts, hard-headed logistics, though he seems well aware of and interested in the metaphysical stakes. His distinction between fighting and transportation is a fruitful one. These are two symbolically opposed approaches to life in the world. It's like his balloon, which normally goes with the wind, but which now is being pulled against it. His word choice for the Balvanger battle, that little dust-up, is conspicuous, too. He insists on a kind of qualitative similarity or even equivalence between his life and equipment in terms of the compensation he received from the Egyptians. He's got life and property, whereas it's the third in the Enlightenment trinity, liberty, which comes to the fore in what follows. Mr. Scoresby, I wish I could answer your question. All I can say is that all of us, humans, witches, bears, are engaged in a war already, although not all of us know it. Whether you find danger on Svalbard or whether you fly off unharmed, you are a recruit under arms, a soldier. Well, that seems kind of precipitate. Seems to me a man should have a choice whether to take up arms or not. We have no more choice in that than in whether or not to be born. No, I like choice, though. I like choosing the jobs I take and the places I go and the food I eat and the companions I sit and yarn with. Don't you wish for a choice once in a while? She wishes to answer his question, but can only tell him that he's in a war already. And so in some manner she does answer it. Likeliest thing is that he will have to fight, whether literally or metaphorically. Understandably, or rather evidently, those who would prefer to go along through life on the transportation model are only deluding themselves. But understandably, Lee pushes back. He calls it kind of precipitate, a lovely word, precipitate, to use among the clouds, surrounded by philosophical instruments. And while understated, it does imply that he is open to being persuaded, only not so fast. 
but the witch doubles down. There's no more choice in this than in whether to be born. The appeal to generation here as an image for fate is striking, implying our createdness and tying in with the story she'll tell Lyra shortly about Farakorum and their child. Against such intransigence, Lee can only draw his line in the sand. I like choices. His examples are evocative. They're polite but pointed. He has not precisely chosen this adventure, nor this place or person to sit and yarn with. Here, Serafina considers. She's not so wise and oracular that she merely decrees, like the Sybil in the Aeneid or the weird sisters in Macbeth. She listens, then offers this way out of the dilemma. Perhaps we don't mean the same thing by choice, Mr. Scoresby. Witches own nothing, so we're not interested in preserving value or making profits. And as for the choice between one thing and another, when you live for many hundreds of years, you know that every opportunity will come again. We have different needs. You have to repair your balloon and keep it in good condition, and that takes time and trouble. I see that. But for us to fly, all we have to do is tear off a branch of cloud pine. Any will do, and there are plenty more. We don't feel cold, so we need no warm clothes. We have no means of exchange apart from mutual aid. If which needs something, another which will give it her. If there is a war to be fought, we don't consider cost one of the factors in deciding whether or not it is right to fight. Nor do we have any notion of honor, as bears do, for instance. An insult to a bear is a deadly thing. To us, inconceivable. How could you insult a witch? What would it matter if you did? So, as Lee says, agreeing with her point about honor, but also with her deeper point about what they each mean by the word choice, names ain't worth a quarrel. Existence, for her and for him, is a different thing, according to their nature and their culture and the choices open to them and the importance of these choices, of their sense of those choices and of what is at stake. All that is naturally different. Hence, they have to, in some measure, translate, though ostensibly both are speaking English, experiential concepts rather delicately, considering the sort of world inhabited by one another. The witch's world sounds almost prelapsarian, whereas Lee's, of course, is more or less the familiar one of our everyday life. With that, Lee seems to decide they've reached enough of an understanding for him to lay out something of what is behind his practical questions and his prickly conservatism. His dream, it emerges, is not to fly, but to earn enough money to retire go home and feel the evening wind over the sage and have a glass of bourbon whiskey. The Wells Fargo Bank, famous for its stagecoach insignia, gets a bit of a product placement here, and the exotic Port Galveston impinges on the otherwise almost unremitting northernness of the setting. Whereas for a witch, the material substrate of flying is cheap, while the experience is essential, a witch would no sooner give up flying than give up breathing. To fly is to be perfectly ourselves. 
For Lee, it is otherwise. I see that, ma'am, and I envy you, but I ain't got your sources of satisfaction. Flying is just a job to me, and I'm just a technician. I might as well be adjusting valves in a gas engine or wiring up ambaric circuits, but I chose it, you see. It was my own free choice, which is why I find this notion of a war I ain't been told nothing about kind of troubling. So he recurs to his principle in there. It was my own free choice. We might wonder which of the two attitudes or some combination of them describes best Pullman's approach to writing. At times he seems to insist he's a kind of craftsman. At others, that the voice of his narrator is a kind of muse. The witch queen, as if to comfort Lee by pointing out that he does have company in all this, says that Yorick is a part of it too. And again, when Lee hears her, he objects. She says, this child is destined to play a part in that. You speak of destiny, he said, as if it was fixed. And I ain't sure I like that any more than a war I'm enlisted in without knowing about it. Where's my free will, if you please? To bring the conversation back to its starting point, he notes colorfully that Lyra has more free will than anyone he's ever met. And Serafina seems to agree, after a fashion. She clearly shares his concern with the prospect of an incurious deist's clockwork universe, sharpening the image in what she'll go on to say about universes like interlocking machines. And in language Pullman himself uses in his essays, not to mention the clockwork story, she asserts, we all must act as if we are not, or die of despair. At this point, she elaborates on what we heard from the consul, that Lyra is destined to bring about the end of destiny, but must do this as if it were her nature, without knowing what she's doing. And that's also rather like what the master had said back at the beginning of the book. And Lee, remarking on Lyra's stubborn frown, suggests that she seems to know it, or some part of her does. And after all, she does, a little bit. Though the crucial self-consciousness of compulsion that Serafina has spoken of is critically absent. Referring next to the boy, Lee means Roger, but we might hear some foreshadowing of the role of Will just as the Egyptians have kept their eye on Lyra, it seems so have the witches, for Serafina does know about him, that is, Roger at least, and has given the matter some thought. She knows that Lyra must bring something of immense value to Lord Asriel. She suggests that the fates are using her to do it, that Roger in turn has been brought by the fates. Lee asks, that's how you read it, huh? And for the first time, the witch seemed unsure. That is how it seems. But we can't read the darkness, Mr. Scoresby. It is more than possible that I might be wrong. Her humility here is crucial. It's something that will take Lyra, natural reader and storyteller that she is, a long while to learn. And in being open to alternative interpretations, 
Serafina illustrates yet another respect in which we not only have choice, but must choose and accept the consequences. This becomes a topic, sorry, this becomes a much richer passage still in the hindsight of what will happen at Lord Asriel's, what that something is. He's the last topic they touch on. He's another strong candidate for someone who seems to have more free will than anyone else, though equally possible to see him as an instrument in the working out of Lyra's destiny, folded in with the ties of love and obligation between the witch and Fartacorum, the Egyptians and Lord Azrael, the bear, and now at least friendly inquiry to the aeronaut in lieu of a favorable wind. It's quite possible to hear in Serafina's warning of a difficult landing and Lee's hopeful tug in the right direction, a hint of playful innuendo. He seems serious when he speaks of Yorick's protective love for Lyra, though, and he agrees that, like the bear, they are both on Lyra's side. Oh, no doubt about that. The image is reinforced by his setting of the windbreak around the sleeping children and lying down beside the bear for some shut-eye. This unusual narrative break from Lyra's perspective, amplifying the ones we saw between the master and the librarian and Fartacorum and Dr. Lincelius, and like them occurring at important interludes in the adventure, this all switches back now to the heroine's view with a lush description of what essentially remains the same scene. When Lyra woke up, the moon was high in the sky, and everything in sight was silver-plated, from the roiling surface of the clouds below to the frost spears and icicles on the rigging of the balloon. Roger was sleeping, and so were Lee Scoresby and the bear. Beside the basket, however, the witch queen was flying steadily. How far are we from Svalbard? Lyra said. Yeah. Another of those rare instances of a specific time being mentioned. We soon pass over, though, to weightier questions. Um, what's going to happen when I find Lord Asriel? Will he want to come back to Oxford or what? I don't know if I ought to tell him. I know he's my father, neither. He might want to pretend he's still my uncle. I don't hardly know him at all. Uh, besides Asriel, we soon ask, too, about... Uh, well, how well uh, Lyra understands that uh, that's something that's being taken to him. Um, of course, the Witch Queen is vague. So presumably, it's out of humility again, rather than outright dishonesty. She avoids telling Lyra or us too much that it's something to do, something to be done in another world. Lord Asriel is the only one who can bridge the gulf between that world and this, and that he needs something to help him. I'd be intrigued to know at what stage in his writing Pullman saw all these threads come together, and how much he went back and revised once he did, but I suspect that even if it was not until quite late in the story, he had it in the back of his mind all along that something, that something, would not be the alethiometer which Lyra and the reader have supposed all along. We're reminded again of the master's cryptic words, 
its opaque plans, explanation of which, if it had been forthcoming, was cut off by Mrs. Coulter's arrival. To Lyra's guess that they'll make the bridge together by her reading the Alethionda, Serafina admonishes her There are powers who speak to us, and there are powers above them, and there are secrets even from the Most High. Um, venture to say that this is a reflection of Pullman's abiding interest in Gnosticism, which comes through from time to time, the belief in these kinds of hierarchies of wisdom and power, and... Uh, rather unorthodox there to suggest that even the Most High remains ignorant of certain things, but certainly interesting. That would, after all, carve out a bit of space for free will, you would think. More to the point, it's too cold for Lyra to read the alethiometer, so the pattern that we've seen for quite a while now has continued. Lyra's still unable to read the instrument. And while Serafina acts as a kind of alethiometer herself here, she also ought to be a model for a kind of reader. This problem of the cold, which is again literal and metaphorical, shifts Lyra's focus to the witch. In a synesthetic description which prepares us for what she'll say next, the stars are compared to diamonds bright and cold and hard. The witches, turns out, feel cold, but don't mind it, because they also feel other things. The bright tingle of the stars, or the music of the aurora, or best of all, the silky feeling of moonlight on our skin. It's worth being cold for that. So, we can feel these things too, or we can imagine them and like Lyra, we can stay wrapped up at the same time. Following the thread of her curiosity, we learn that Serafina, young and beautiful as she looks, is nearly 300 years old, or more. And that witches can live to be a thousand, perhaps. But they are not immortal. We learn this in the same moment that we learn about their god. A pairing of mortality and religious consciousness which will shortly have its third constituent piece, sexuality, introduced by Lyra's next, still innocent question. And are there men witches, or only women? There are men who serve us, like the consulate Charlesand, and there are men we take for lovers or husbands. You are so young, Lyra, too young to understand this, but I shall tell you anyway, and you'll understand it later. Men pass in front of our eyes like butterflies, creatures of a brief season. We love them. They are brave, proud, beautiful, clever, and they die almost at once. They die so soon that our hearts are continually racked with pain. We bear their children, who are witches if they are female, human if not, and then in the blink of an eye they are gone, felled, slain, lost. Our sons, too. When a little boy is growing, he thinks he is immortal. His mother knows he isn't. Each time becomes more painful, until finally your heart is broken. Perhaps that is when Yambeaka comes for you. 
she is older than Tatundra, perhaps for her, witches' lies are as brief as men's are to us. In this, Serafina stands in for the narrator who tells us things we can only piece together in hindsight, and which we'll see differently depending on when and how we read them. She likens mortal men to butterflies. Pullman's own image when he speaks of his story in progress is butterfly soup. And her moving connection between love and pain with the image of the heart reminds us of Lyra and Pan. While the part about boys thinking they're immortal, while their mother knows they aren't, plays into the innocence experience theme, illustrated in a somewhat new way by Lee's talk about free will, in which the character will, a boy mature beyond his years, later picks up for us. Once again, the witch queen shows herself able to think from another perspective, this time not from Lee's more limited, but from the standpoint of Yambe Aka, death as a comforter. If all this is a little too abstract, Lyra makes it a good deal more tangible for us, asking, did you love Farrakhan? And she asks, uh, yes, does he know that? I don't know, but I know he loves you. Oh, let's move along. That was a little, I lost my place. Oh, once more, Serafina seems quite as invested in free will as Lee, but she impresses its limitations on us all the same. She says, I loved him at once. I would have changed my nature. I would have forsaken the star tangle and the music of the aura. I would never have flown again. I would have given all that up in a moment, without a thought, to be Egyptian boat wife and cook for him and share his bed and bear his children. But you cannot change what you are, only what you do. I am a witch. He is a human. So... There's yet another variation here on that other theme of the lost child, and it comes in to help explain what happened between the two of them. We hear about an epidemic of 40 years ago, a sickness that came out of the East. Presumably this was one of the outbreaks of flu, if we were to try to pin it down to a real-world analog. But the significance of the event is more to the point. He flickered into life and out of it like a mayfly, and it tore pieces out of my heart as it always does. It broke corms. So, that likening now to a mayfly, a smaller insect, one that looks a little bit like dust as well. She is proud of Fartacorum. She doesn't wish to make him feel ashamed for her, and so she has never contacted him again, aside from helping him when he was wounded with the poison arrow. And uh, she also alludes to these mysterious witch wars, which Fartacorum himself made mention of. I think I skipped reading this at the time, but it's a great 
great quote. Lara asks back in the chapter of fencing, I think, I wonder if your witch was one of them, the one flying. My witch? I wouldn't presume that far, Lyra. They might be going anywhere. There's all kinds of concerns that play on the life of witches, things invisible to us, mysterious sicknesses they fall prey to, which we shrug off, causes of war quite beyond our understanding, joys and sorrows bound up with the flowering of tiny plants up on the tundra. But I wish I had seen them a-flying, Lyra. I wish I'd been able to see a sight like that. So at any rate, they kept her occupied. Then she thought that he would forget her and marry again. And this seems to offend Lyra's romantic sensibilities. He never would. You ought to go and see him. He still loves you. I know he does. Uh, she chides her. You ought to send a message to him, at least. That's what I think. And that's when Pan becomes a turn to, if not apologize, <laughs> acknowledge that perhaps they had been insolent. And uh, this triggers the last in the most reader-like series of Lyra's questions, starting from, Why do people have demons, Serafina Pekala? Everyone asks that, and no one knows the answer. I think she probably includes Pullman in that as well. Um, ironically enough, given their animal forms, Serafina sums it up by saying that demons are what make us different from animals. And Lyra, true to form, seizes at once on the most ticklish case. <laughs> like bears. They're strange, aren't they, bears? You think they're like a person, and then suddenly they do something so strange or ferocious, you think you'll never understand them. The Witch Queen is silent on the ways in which this might or might not be quite the case. That is about making one's own soul or being ferocious. Um, the former, particularly for witches with their powers of separation. Um, the latter, perhaps, particularly for people like the Bolvanger uh, staff. In her anguish over Yorick, Yorick's danger coming to Svalbard, Lyra neglects to ask about this other tricky case of the witch demons. Um, but what I wonder is, why is he coming to Svalbard? They'll fight him. They might kill him. I love Yorick. I love him so much, I wish he wasn't coming. So, in a way, she answers her own question there. Then, uh, Serafina asks her, what looks suspiciously like a rhetorical question, has he told you who he is? This is one that Pullman has written, he resisted this plot point strenuously before giving in, thinking it was too cliché. He might have talked about this in more than one place, but at least one of them comes in the essay, Let's Write It in Red, in this context. Now, here's a very important rule. 
It's so important I've written it on a piece of paper and stuck it above my desk. It says, don't be afraid of the obvious. Yeah. Talks about um, people picking up your story with a pair of tongs. Um, oh dear, yes. As E.M. Forrester said, the novel tells a story. If I can briefly quote an example from my own work where I stopped myself from avoiding the obvious. In Northern Lights, there's a bear. I knew from the start he would have to be even more formidable than a real polar bear, so he's an armored bear. But I didn't know how formidable he'd be till he turned up and began to speak. And as soon as he did, the idea came. Why not make him not just any bear, but the king of the bears, and an exile? Because then I could have him fight to regain the throne, and Lyra, the heroine, could help, and that in turn would strengthen her own story, and so on. And almost at once that voice at my shoulder said, No, don't be silly, that's far too obvious, everyone will predict that, it's been done a hundred times. No, what you want is to give it a twist, let him pretend to help her, but really let her down. Let him seem to be a brave bear, but in fact be a coward. Don't go for the obvious. But fortunately, I know how to resist that voice now. And I looked at my piece of paper, and I did the obvious thing. And I think the story is better for it. The same impulse came to me with Lyra's parents. Lord Asriel and Mrs. Coulter are her father and mother, but that's obvious, isn't it? Much cleverer to make her think they are, and then reveal that they're not, or something. But I resisted that, too. We shouldn't be afraid of the obvious, because stories are about life, and life is full of obvious things, like food and sleep and love and courage, which you don't stop needing just because you're a good reader. <laughs> Great stuff. Uh, now, uh, Serafina answers, of course, York is a prince. And she goes on to explain more about this in contrast to Yophorachnus and the king of the bears that we've heard so much about. Twice, in quick succession, she describes him as subtle, or caring about subtlety anyway. First, it's in terms of his human-like cleverness, an unbear-like abode and ambitions, and secondly, especially, there is a hint of self-consciousness as he cultivates the reputation of subtlety. As the story unfolds, we see just how like Lord Azrael and Yorick are. Beyond similarity in their punishment, which Lyra already noticed, there's the likeness in their crime, killing over a female. In the case of the bears, Yorick's rival was partly to blame for refusing to yield, not displaying the signs of surrender, while Yorick was to blame too for failing to read this unexpected situation. If he were truly bear-like at that moment, should not have been tricked, but should have considered the possibility of foul play. Some say that Yofor Rachnison worked on his mind, or gave him confusing herbs to eat. At any rate, the young bear persisted, and Yorick Birnison allowed his temper to master him. The case was not hard to judge. He should have wounded, not killed. The whole situation here is also like the demon staring contest that we saw. Only this would be one of those outliers where the victor is not undisputed. And whereas Yorick showed Lyra how to master her fear, um, in this situation, his temper masters him. Yet again, 
Ira is reminded of something that the Pamirian professor had said back in chapter two. She puts it together with Yorick's fencing lesson, uh, whatever it was, that it was about bears being tricked and how he was tricked by the people of Trollesund. So this blows up her theory that only bears can trick other bears, and it makes way for Serafina's insight. When bears act like people, perhaps they can be tricked. When bears act like bears, perhaps they can't. Ah, yes, said Lyra, nodding. She was satisfied with that idea. Um, so she still hasn't remembered quite what it was the Palmyrian professor was saying, but there's this nudge yet again for us to go back and check if we're curious. Um, it also sort of illustrates for us how to discuss the book, um, how to graciously accept when our theories are not uh, tenable, and how to be delighted and satisfied by ones that are better. Um, anyway, in this reading, Yorick's drinking is an after-effect of his shame at the exile, so that Yofor would be ultimately behind that indignity of losing his armor for a second time. I think in passing, I might note that Lyra seems to have picked up on a detail that is pretty easy for readers to miss, that Yorick had uh, lost his first set of armor upon being exiled, had made a new set of armor for himself, which then he lost at Trollicent and then recovered. That's the one that Lyra got him back. So somewhere out there, I guess, is his original set of armor, unless it's been, who knows, destroyed. Um, but her ability to, to note little details like that and to you know, seize upon things that she heard someone say once back in the retiring room also suggests, uh, again, the kind of readers that Pullman seems to want for his story, ones who are engaged in it uh, to a pretty superlative degree and thereby can, capture, uh, can, can uh, catch hold of uh, small details and, and piece together patterns across the, the whole expanse of the story. Um, that may not be reasonable to expect from, from every reader, of course, uh, or of every book, but uh, perhaps of ones where, like Lyra for Yorick, we feel a kind of love and, and sense that there is a, a mutual uh, love and protectiveness towards us from the story that we're reading. Maybe that's gone a bit too far, but at any rate, Lyra is satisfied. Whether Pullman was at first or not with this turn of the story, she's glad to learn of Yorick's nobility, and she compares Serafina ever more favorably with Mrs. Coulter, though calling her clever, cleverer than her, as we've seen, can be a moral liability too. <clears throat> if, uh, like Yofer, that is, they uh, use it for deceitful purposes. Finally, Lyra asks the toughest question of all. Serafina Pecola, she said after some time, what's dust? Because it seems to me that all this trouble's about dust, only no one's told me what it is. I don't know. Witches have never worried about dust. All I can tell you is that where there are priests, there is fear of dust. 
When the witch points out that priests fear it, this actually seems to take Lyra by surprise. She might not have put together what has been obvious to the Egyptians and the scholars, and most likely to the reader by now, that the organization cast in the role of villain, false kidnappers and scientists and crack troops, goes by the name of the church. As with choice, we might well demure what Pullman means by church and what we mean by it are slightly different, no doubt, but few words would be harder to find common ground for people to open up to one another across the range of their natures and experiences and dreams. But to stay with Lyra's revelation here, perhaps she also sees that the way Mrs. Coulter had the church pay for Balvanger is like the way Azriel had the Jordan scholars pony up for his expedition to the north. Beside the wonder that she felt in the retiring room, like what Serafina feels reflecting upon the Tartars drilling holes in their skulls, this is set over against not only her parents' ambitions, but still more, the fear and hatred of those who feel not wonder at the strangeness of dust, but the need to go tearing things apart to examine them. Leave that to the church. The church, said Lyra. Something had come back to her. She remembered talking with Pantalaimon in the fens about what it was, or what it might be, that was moving the needle of the alethiometer. And they had thought of the photo mill in the high altar at Gabriel College how elementary particles pushed the little veins around. The intercessor there was clear about the link between elementary particles and religion. Could be, she said, nodding. Most church things they keep secret after all. But most church things are old and dust and old, as far as I know. I wonder if Lord Asriel might tell me. She yawned. <laughs> so, as far as tearing things apart to examine what they are, that is, of course, not the kind of reader that we would aspire to be. But even the best readers like Lyra do get tired and have incomplete knowledge as to the age of dust, for example, here. And uh, as she supposes, Lord Asriel will be able to explain a bit more for her, but that's a ways off yet. And that leap that Lyra makes here, intuitively, she goes from the church to remembering, talking about what might move the alethiometer, how they observe the photo mill. So the idea of dust, an elementary particle, being some secret church thing, that's what she takes ultimately from Serafina's explanation. Its lack of antiquity might be a sticking point, but but Lyra seems exhausted. She's deterred from further attempts to appeal to Serafina's cleverness. She mostly seems to be serving a protective function here, not telling Lyra too much. And it makes me think that maybe the church thing is, well, at least possible to read as a red herring. But can't read the darkness, after all. Uh, and ominously, Asriel might tell me. Yeah. So 
So this comes full circle and reveals that it's connected for her with her trauma at Bolvanger. Because Lyra concludes that she, uh, she's been cold down on the ground, but never been this cold. I think I might die if I get any colder. Uh, I thought when they put us under that blade thing, I thought that was it. We both did. Oh, that was cruel. But we'll lie down now. Wake us up when we get there. So, uh, looks like we're at the end of the chapter there. And so the four travelers sailed on, sleeping in the ice-encrusted balloon toward the rocks and glaciers, the fire mines and the ice forts of Svalbard. There's a break, and then action. A sequence ensues. Um, I'll say just in passing that that sleeping travel uh, does have some classical uh, antecedents. Um, one big one being Odysseus at the end of his journey, coming home in the ship, uh, the ship's fastest thought, the Phaeacians, um, while he's asleep. Um, but anyhow, in the interest of time, I'll say just a word about this difficult landing that ensues here. We'll do it in the context of recess, to kill two cliff ghasts with one cuff and one pistol shot. Those beasts make their entrance, a little comically, a little terrifyingly, which seems about right, as far as tone, after all this deep discussion. And abruptly, Lyra makes her exit, separating her from the other travelers, and putting her in providential snow between two rocks. She's disoriented to the point she doesn't know which way is up at first. She realizes she's in snow in a manner reminiscent to that in the battle against the Tartar guards. Here, the snow saves her without her doing anything. Before the cold down there does kill her, she's found by the bear sentries. Oh God, I'm frightened, she said. I hope they're safe. He came to her arms, and then, mouse-formed, crept into her hood where he couldn't be seen. She heard a noise, something scraping on rock, and turned to see what it was. Yorick! But she choked the word back unfinished, for it wasn't Yorick Bjernison at all. It was a strange bear, clad in polished armor, with the dew on it frozen into frost, and with a plume in his helmet. <laughs> uh, so she doesn't finish the name, for it isn't Yorick. Perhaps her shouts led them to her, but they also seemed to have seen the balloon somehow through the fog, or anyhow, they knew to watch out for it. She gives her real name here and doesn't dissemble, though Pan, as if having some premonition, or else simply afraid, conceals himself, and that proves to be crucial to the disguise Lyra will adopt in Svalbard. He also checks the alethiometer, which is still safe and still hidden, too, to the sound of waves and distant cliff-gassed ructions. The chapter closes. In the imaginary video game adaptation, we'd want to expand a few things to help compensate for this long discussion. We'd talk about, or rather, we'd get to play the battle above the cliffs from the witch's perspective as well as the aeronauts, so that a few different modes of flying and fighting would be in play. But also perhaps we'd see something more of Fartacorum and Serafina Pecola's life in the past, 
we'd see something of the epidemic, something of the witch wars, and maybe even something involving those powers which speak to the witches, um, those natural experiences for them which are so foreign to our nature and way of thinking. If you did something particularly impressive in the cliff cast fight, uh, I don't know, using the ballast that's dropped to uh, hit a number of cliff casts at once in a, in a combo or something of that sort, um, maybe you could unlock uh, Lee Scoresby's dream retirement home. Uh, nothing fancy, you know. And uh, he does make a point of saying that there's no slaves, though it's unclear whether he's talking about the historical slavery of the Americas or something more like uh, uh, like a, a painting of uh, Delacroix, something like that. But in the end, uh, go back to Lyre's perspective, and with her, we wonder how she could talk her way out of this. Let's find out next chapter. Thanks again for listening. Take care.